Our scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 through 16. Hear God's word to us. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you all here this morning. My name is Mike. I'm a pastor on staff here at Christ Community's downtown campus. And I wanted to start this morning by telling you about one of the most um, profound moments of my entire life. In fact, I could tell you exactly where I was sitting in my parents' basement when this happened. See, out of the middle of nowhere, I was minding my own business, I started to hear these noises. At first, it was like a screeching. And then it became kind of like this beeping noise, and then it turned into just radio static. Now, if I had been allowed to watch horror movies at this point in my life, I'd have obviously been looking around for who's about to come out from the, behind the closet and kill me. Um, but I was innocent in my childhood, and so there I sat. As these noises went on and on, and as quickly as they started, they stopped. And it was silent. And on the computer screen in front of me, a picture popped up. And a man's voice I had never heard before spoke to me and said, welcome, you've got mail. <laughs> I had never experienced this before. So I took off running and found my dad and said, dad, what's going on in this computer? And he said, Mike, this is the internet. I said, dad, what's the internet? And he said, Mike, you can type something on this computer screen and your cousin, who's away at college, will see the same thing on his computer screen. It was a whole new world for me. It was a world of long instant messaging conversations and arguments with my parents because I was tying up the phone lines for hours and hours on end. There are some people in here who are, will struggle to believe that such a world actually existed, but it did. I lived through it. And it got better because... We moved on from the phone internet to the cable internet. And with the cable internet, it was so much better than the phone internet because you could be on the internet for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and still make phone calls at your leisure. <laughs> We've come so far with the internet by now that we almost can't imagine a world without it, can we? I mean, let's try for a second. Imagine you woke up tomorrow and the internet was just gone. Amen. That actually happened first service, too. It sounds like we're, we got some momentum going here. How, let's think about this. How? How would you stay meaningfully connected to people, thousands of people you met one time in college? How would you distill your brilliant political commentary to the masses? How would the world know and feel with you the dessert you're about to eat? 
This world without this internet is a scary, scary thought. Here's another question for you. This one, in all seriousness, does actually keep me up at night. What about the church? What if we woke up tomorrow morning, Kansas City woke up tomorrow morning, and all of the churches within the city limits sat empty and in disrepair, and nobody ever went to a service again? What would the difference be for the way that Kansas City does business, for the way that our local government runs, for the way that our nonprofits serve the vulnerable? Would there be any difference at all? I mean, we know what would happen if the internet was gone. It'd be pandemonium and rioting in the streets, but what about the church? And I have trouble answering that question. And one of the reasons I have trouble answering that question is because churches really fail to get on the same page about what our effect on the world ought to be. Like, what should they miss about us if we're gone? Some churches want to embrace the leadership of the city around them and embrace the cultural voices of the city around them and look exactly like them so that we'd be relevant. Some churches want to fly right under the radar. Just go do our thing, you do your thing, we'll leave each other alone, we won't be noticed. Some churches want to go on the offensive. They want to bring a shock and awe campaign where they're dropping truth bombs all over this city. There's a lot of confusion there. A lot of confusion on what we're supposed to do here in Kansas City as the church. And I want to suggest to you this morning that the reason we are so confused as a church about how we are supposed to interact with and affect our city is not because we're lacking an action plan. It's not because we haven't been given step-by-step directions on how to to, uh, engage every single scenario. It's much more fundamental than that. I want to suggest that all this confusion exists not because we don't understand what to do, but because we don't understand who we are and who we're supposed to be. And Jesus, being the brilliant man that he is, he saw this coming, and he actually spoke directly to it in one of the most famous sermons ever recorded. If you're new with us today or you've been gone for a couple of weeks, we have started a long journey through the eyewitness account of Matthew that tells us all about the life and teachings of Jesus. If you've got a Bible with you, why don't you go ahead and flip over or toggle over to Matthew chapter 5, verse 11. It'll be on page 810 if you're using one of our community Bibles. And as we've taken a look specifically at this sermon called the Sermon on the Mount, we've titled our time, The Upside-Down Kingdom. And we've done that because as Jesus continues to explain what this kingdom is like, explain how his citizens will act, and explain exactly how it'll interact with the world, we come to see that it's so countercultural, so otherworldly, so different than anything any culture has ever put forward that the only thing we can call it is upside-down. And because of how upside down and countercultural and otherworldly this kingdom is, Jesus knows that its citizens are going to have a hostile relationship with this world. He actually tells us that right at the beginning of our passage. Look with me at Matthew chapter 5, verse 11. Blessed are you when, not if, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil falsely against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, this is how they've always treated God's people. This hostile relationship between the world and God's people has always 
existed. And so in the face of this relationship, given the fact that we know we are going to be persecuted, that this relationship with the world is not going to be easy or good or simple, Jesus goes on to give us exact instructions on how we're supposed to relate, how the church is supposed to exist in whatever city it finds itself. But he doesn't give us an action plan. He doesn't give us steps one through three uh, to an easy and simple relationship with the world. Instead, he gives us two pictures to clarify our identity. Because when we understand who we are, what we're supposed to do will emerge easily from it. And so Jesus, anticipating this relationship, seeing that it already exists, he gives us two pictures for what the church is. Salt and light. Salt and light. First, you are the salt of the earth in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. You know, we have salt all over the place in our world. It's all over our roads. It's all over our diets. In Jesus' day, salt was a very, very valuable thing because of the amount of uses it fulfilled. You know, you could use it for so many things. You could use it for um, sweetening up or, or giving taste to a dish that didn't have any, any taste. We still use that now. Um, the most significant use that it had, though, by far, was as a preservative. You know, we miss this effect because we have refrigerators and freezers and ice boxes and meat lockers and all sorts of different ways to make sure that our meat will last through the night. But in Jesus' day, your only hope to preserve your food is by salting it. And this last idea is the picture Jesus is painting of the church. That a world in the decaying effects of sin needs a preserving force. And this is the function the church is supposed to fulfill. When the world around us, the economic policy of uh, our government, our local government, when the way people do business, when all that stuff leads us towards injustice, the church is supposed to be the group who will stand up on behalf of those being oppressed, who will preserve, who will slow down and reverse the effects of sin in this world. Now, if we don't understand that as our identity, if we don't understand that we are the salt of the earth, then there's a really serious trap that we could fall into. And Jesus lays it out. Look with me again as I read verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You know, if care is not taken, salt can become so diluted by the thing that it's attempting to preserve that it loses its ability to preserve anything. It loses its taste, it loses its function, it loses everything that makes it salt. And when that's the case, Jesus says, it's only good for being thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And I was wondering this week as I was reading this passage, why does he go so far as to say trampled under people's feet? I mean, if you come across expired food in your refrigerator or your cabinet, what do you do? You throw it out, but do you like stomp on it and trample it like as you're mad at it or something? Why, why does he go so far to say that? And so I did some digging into this word this week, trampled. What is, what's Jesus talking about here? Um, I have a young son, he's one year old, and um, he has mastered mastered the ability to spread his toys across our entire loft like that. It's absurd how good he is at this, even though he can't walk. But his toys are everywhere. And if I'm not walking around my, uh, my loft with laser focus on where my feet are going to go, then my feet are likely going to find something that is either sharp and or has wheels. It happens to me almost every day. 
Now, this is not the kind of trampling Jesus is talking about here. This is not the picture of somebody who's walking by and doesn't see something and steps on it and it breaks. The word Jesus uses here for trampled is full of premeditation, it's full of emotion, and full of the intent to destroy something. What Jesus is saying is when the church loses its saltiness, when it becomes so diluted with the world, which, is, which it is meant to preserve, its only goodness is to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. In other words, best just put it out of its misery. It's a pretty serious trap to fall into, isn't it? And if we don't understand who we are, that we are the salt of the earth, it's one we're in danger of falling into, isn't it? You see, we've got to understand who we are. We've got to understand that we're the salt of the earth, and we must not lose our saltiness. And the second picture Jesus paints is light. In verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. This metaphor kind of speaks for itself. You can find it all throughout the pages of Scripture. The authors of Scripture love to use light as a metaphor. And often when it shows up, it's either going to be talking about truth or hope. Truth or hope or some combination of the two. And here's what I mean by that. Twice a month, I have a meeting that is out in Overland Park, Kansas. And it starts at 530 in the morning. So I get ready for most of those meetings in the dark. Not because I'm too lazy to turn the lights on at that time in the morning, but because my wife, being a normal person, is not awake at 4.30 in the morning. So I get to pick out my clothes in the dark, which you can't really usually tell the difference anyways, but that's another story. So one of these meetings, about halfway through the meeting, I'll never forget, I looked down and I realized in the middle of this meeting that I was wearing two socks that literally had nothing to do with each other. They weren't the same height, the same length, they, didn't, they weren't the same color, I mean nothing. And I looked at my, my socks and I thought to myself, I left my loft this morning so confident I was ready for this day. So assured that I could take on whatever life would throw at me. But what I really needed was some light. Because the reality is that there's a world full of people walking around out there who clearly got ready in the dark. And who desperately need the light of truth to shine on their life. To show them that all the things they're chasing, all the things they're worshiping, all the things they're trusting in to meet their needs are not going to do it. That they're not ready to face the day. And what they need is the light of hope to shine on them and show them the one who can meet all their needs. The one in whom all the deepest desires of their hearts will be met. And this is the role of the church the light of the world. And when the church misunderstands its identity and doesn't know that it is the light of the world, there's a second and equally dangerous trap it can fall into. You see, if on one side of the spectrum, the desire is to become so, get so near to the world that, that the church becomes indistinguishable from it, the overcorrection would be, in the name of our own safety, for the church to get so far away from the world that it's of no benefit to anyone. Listen to how Jesus talks about this in verse, 14, in, uh, verse 15. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Jesus is painting an almost humorous picture. It's hard to imagine in here because it's so bright, but just let's imagine it's dark. And there's no other source of light. And in this house, 
this lamp is lit and it's placed on a stand in the middle of the house for the purpose of giving everyone light. And immediately after lighting this lamp, the lighter covers it up. This is foolish, isn't it? I mean, why would you ever spend your time lighting a lamp you're going to cover immediately and is going to give no light to anyone? And that is exactly the picture of a church in the name of its own safety and its own sanctity draws so far away from the world that it's of no benefit to, everyone, to anyone. The simplest way to put it is that for the Christian and for the church, cultural engagement is not an option. It's not an option. That's actually why we are an art gallery here at the downtown campus. Um, we live and exist right in the middle of the arts district here in Kansas City. We're between shows right now, but soon we're going to have some new great awesome art up. And on the first Friday night of February, we're going to open up our doors, as will all the other art galleries down here. And uh, people will come in and view our art. Now, are we perfect at understanding how a church is supposed to engage in the art scene here in the Crossroads District of Kansas City, Missouri? Of course we're not. We have an awesome team of volunteers who is really helping us with this. But we're not perfect. But we do know that we can't sit it out. We can't be here in the arts district and not somehow engage the art scene because cultural engagement for the Christian is not an option. Because what happens to a lamp if it's covered up long enough? It goes out. You see, the great irony of these two pictures is that whether... We get so near to the world that we lose our saltiness. Or we draw so far away from the world that we cover ourselves up to protect ourselves. The end result is the same. The salt is trampled into oblivion and the light goes out. And this is what happens when we misunderstand our identity. When we don't understand that we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Now, you may have noticed so far, I have tried really hard anyways, to use the word church and we, and not you and Christians. Because there's a very specific picture Jesus is painting here. You know, if you're anything like me, you've heard this message preached before, and you've probably heard something like, this little light of mine, you know what I mean? Like, you Christian are going to go out and be the light of the world. And that's true, don't hear me say that's not true. It's just nowhere near the power and the beauty of the picture Jesus is painting here. In fact, Right away, after he tells us we're the light of the world, he clarifies exactly what he means by that. Look with me again at verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. A city. See, this picture Jesus is painting is not one of a bunch of disconnected uh, you know, lights wandering around in a dark land. The identity that we have as a church, as salt and light, is a corporate identity. I mean, think about it. What good is one grain of salt to preserving a side of beef that might go bad? What good is one candle in the middle of a city whose power has gone out? But that's not the picture Jesus is drawing here. You've probably seen pictures like this. This is a picture of the, Med the Midwest um, region of our country at night from space. You can see a really big grouping of light up by that lake. That's Chicago, where I'm from. Go Cubs. Right down here in the middle of it all, you can see a big cluster of lights. That's St. Louis. And right at the bottom of the screen, you can just barely start to see the gathering of lights, which is the north of the Kansas City metro. Now imagine if one of these cities heard that this picture was being taken and said, guys, we got to hide. How would that go? 
You can't hide any of these cities from this picture, not if you wanted to, because so much of the light has come together. That in that cluster of light, you say, hey, here's Chicago in exactly the same way. The church ought to be screaming, hey, here is your hope. Here is your life. Here is everything that you need and desire right here in the person that we worship. This is the picture Jesus is painting of a corporate identity of a church, a gathered body of believers having an effect on the world. You know, here at Christ Community, we are convinced that the local church as God designed it is the hope of the world. That the local church is God's plan A to bring this kingdom about in this world and in this city. And he doesn't have a fail-safe. And it's verses like these, passages like these from the lips of Jesus that have sold us out to that belief, sold me out to that belief. Now, I recognize that as I say that, there are probably some folks in here who are having a bit of a visceral reaction to that statement. I mean, isn't saying that the church is the hope of the world exactly the kind of thing that drives people away from the church? Isn't it exactly the kind of thing that makes us irrelevant and regressive and no help to anybody? Isn't that holier-than-thou attitude exactly the kind of thing that the world shuns and runs away from? And can I say something about that? That's fair. That's a fair assessment because historically, people have used this passage as a rallying cry for their own cause and have shown how little they understand how upside down this kingdom is and have shown that they don't know the king. Because look, here's the deal. When I say the local church is the hope of the world, you all know this, but I'm going to say it out loud anyways. It has nothing to do with us. We're not the light to this world because we're inherently better than anybody else. We're not salt to this earth because we figured something out that nobody else has figured out. It has nothing to do with us. And everything to do with the fact that God dwells among us and lives in us. The very God who commanded us to let our light shine is the very God who spoke the first light into existence. Is the very God who is the light that the darkness has not and cannot and will not overcome. Is the very God who said, I am the light of the world and then backed it up by walking out of his tomb three days later is the very God whose presence will be the light that will make the sun and the moon obsolete in the end. That God lives among us. And the extent to which we are the light of the world and the salt of the earth is determined by how much we are showing his light. It's determined by how much of this character that's going to be defined for us in the Sermon on the Mount we have put on. It's determined by how submitted and committed to our King Jesus we are. Not by our own selves. Because it's all about Jesus. It always has been all about Jesus. And it's only in him that we can exist as salt and as light. And so that's our identity. That's who we are. The church is the salt of the earth and the light of the world. So given that that's the case, now, finally, what do we do? How is it that we can relate in this hostile relationship with the citizens of the world? Well, Jesus lays it out for us in verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
What, should, what does a light do? It shines. What does salt do? It preserves. The action that we're supposed to do flows so easily from our identity. And if we understand that we are the salt, that we are the light, then we know exactly what we need to do. We need to shine. We need to be the windows through which the world looks in and sees the glory of our Father who is in heaven and worships him. So how are we doing at this? Christ Community's downtown campus in Kansas City. How are we doing at this? If we and the local churches like us around the city are God's plan A for this city, that it would be preserved from the ill effects of sin and that a light of hope and truth would shine into its darkness, how are we doing? You know, right here in this passage, Jesus actually gives us two markers of what a church who is faithfully being salt and light will experience in this relationship. And they are persecution and praise. And when these two things are happening together, we can know, we can have confidence that we are functioning as salt and light. We don't want to fall towards one end where all we get is people joining us, people coming in the doors, people being all about what we're about, but nobody's persecuting us, nobody's reviling us, nobody's talking about us behind our back. Everybody likes us. If that's the case, I think we're missing something. I think we need to consider whether we are preaching the fullness of the message that every single human being on this earth got ready in the dark. That every single human being on this earth stands hopeless before God and can do nothing about their own state. And I would think we need to take stock about whether we're teaching people really what this life is that Jesus came to bring. Just how hard and uncomfortable and other-centered and antithetical to the American dream it is. We must not hide our light. Of course, the flip side is, we could be the people who only get persecution and revile and all sorts of evil talk about us because we're so contentious and argumentative that nobody wants to be around us. And nobody is ever getting saved and nobody is coming to join us or worship our Father in heaven. And if that's the case, then I think we're missing something. I think we need to consider the fact that though, yes, every single person is worse than they ever thought, that they are also more loved by their Father in heaven than they ever dared hope. I think we need to consider whether or not we are preaching that this life that Jesus came and brought and taught to us is actually, though it's more difficult, though it's more uncomfortable, it's actually better now and in eternity. We must not lose our saltiness. Neither of these options, salt that's trampled or a light that goes out, are desirable. But we want both. We want both to be persecuted for the name of Jesus, because he himself was persecuted. So why should we expect anything different? But we also want people to join us in glorifying our Father who's in heaven. And when these two things are happening, we are the salt and the light to this world. It got me thinking about a couple people in history who have done this extraordinarily well. The light of the world looks like Mother Teresa, who in the face of this rampant problem of abortion in India, responded not with shouts of condemnation and anger, but with a gentle whisper, begging pregnant mothers to give her their unwanted babies. The light shines like Martin Luther King Jr., who, in the face of his own oppression and the oppression of his brothers and sisters, 
stood up against that oppression and moved for equality and moved for equal rights for all, not with anger or hatred in his heart towards his oppressors, but with compassion, with a desire to see them made whole. And he carried that posture all the way to his grave. Makes me think of people like William Wilberforce who left his position of, of power and prestige and political influence to pursue the end of legal slavery in Britain. What would the world look like without people like that? People who are so committed to Jesus Christ that his light naturally exudes from them. Imagine a world where the evil and decay of abortion and slavery and oppression go forth unchecked. That's what's at stake. If we don't understand who we are and what that means we must do. And that's what's at stake if tomorrow we wake up and all the churches in Kansas City are gone. Church, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. So let your light shine so that others may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful that you preserved this text for us so that today, some 2,000-odd years later, we could sit under it and learn from it. And God, as we hear the message that was preached from Jesus' lips, we realize just how far short we fall, how many times we have lost our saltiness or hidden our light. Have mercy on us, God. But God, Father, we are also not without hope, because you who are the light of the world and the salt of the earth are alive among us. Help us, Father, in our vocations and our families, among our friends and in this city, to be the salt and the light in the way that you were so that the world might glorify you because that's what you deserve. We pray all these things in the name of your Son and our King Jesus. Amen.